So, uh, welcome ladies and gentlemen uh, to the uh, conference on uh, moving Social Security online. And uh, my name is Pat Dunleavy, I'm the chair of uh, LSE Public Policy Group and a professor at the London School of Economics. It's very good of you all to come, we're, we're very pleased to have you with us. And what we're discussing today is uh, a very substantial change in the way in which governments operate. I think we've all seen over the last 10 years that uh, governments have moved their tax processes substantially online. So more than three quarters of uh, British self-assessment taxpayers are now filing online. But uh, right across the world, it's only in the last couple of years that governments have begun to think about moving their social security systems online. And that might raise some issues for you all, and you might have some ideas about why that should be. One possible thing is that governments are obviously very keen for their tax systems to be state-of-the-art because they bring in money. They may not be so keen to have state-of-the-art social security systems that dish out a lot of money. So that's one possibility. A second possibility, of course, is that um, in the past, social security recipients were widely seen, including in, in our own Department of Work and Pensions, as being, you know, uh, not likely to be online. And that has changed very radically in the last uh, five or six years in the UK and is beginning to change elsewhere as well. So we're moving into a world where the digital divide hasn't gone away and many of the problems we'll be discussing today revolve around that, but where it's constantly changing and morphing and taking on new forms and raising new issues. So it's a very large-scale agenda, and it's part of a, a wider agenda, which is a, about digital processes moving to the very heart of government, stopping being on the edges of things as just transactional systems, and becoming absolutely integral to the way in which services operate. And the particular context in the UK is, is, a, is a uniquely favourable one for this to have very uh, immediate and wide-scale implications because of the transition to uh, a universal credit, a universal benefit, a single integrated benefit which the government has outlined. So all of these things, I think, mean that today's conference is very topical. And to introduce it, we have uh, Lord Michael Bichard, who's the chair of the Design Council and who hates being introduced, so I'm not going to introduce him, but I'm just going to... Uh, Hand over to him and welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Actually, no longer chairman of the Design Council, but oh, uh, just uh, retired from that. But I'd like to welcome you to the Design Council nonetheless. Um, don't like introductions because some of the worst moments of my life have been introdu introductions. Uh, I sometimes say, recently introduced by the Chief Constable of Warwickshire to an audience of policemen, and he said, I'm delighted Michael's with us. He is, of course, well known to the police. And you don't, you don't need introductions like that. Um, Patrick said this is a topical conference. It is indeed. It's a very timely uh, conference. Why on earth did you ask me to kind of open it? I, maybe one of the reasons, as you can see from this mugshot, is that you know, for six years I did run the system. So since I'm afraid I do have to leave shortly after I've spoken, you can blame me for many of the things that you're actually now trying to put right. And maybe I was part of the problem more than the solution. But I think this is a timely conference for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, obviously, because of the, the financial crisis and the deficit uh, we face, we do need across public services 
to find new ways of uh, delivering better services at less cost. I seem to have been talking about that now for about three years. And, of course, the, the cost of delivering benefits, aside from the cost of the benefits themselves, which, of course, is absolutely astronomical, the cost of delivering the benefits remains a very considerable cost of the public purse. And it is very important, if we're going to reduce the deficit, that we do something about that. It's timely, too, as Patrick just alluded to, because this is, there is a commitment now to revisit benefit policy. I think very often in the past, governments have tended to treat the policy as sacrosanct and have sought instead to squeeze savings out of the delivery system. And there is a, a limit to the savings you can achieve in that way, and there's a danger that you leave the system even more exposed to fraud and abuse. So I think the commitment to revisit policy provides the opportunity to address the excessive complexity which has made delivery so difficult and which has contributed to the fact that the accounts have been quali have qualified now for more than 20 years. I mean, Jane Tinkler, who's here today, has pointed out that actually the levels of fraud have dropped in the recent past from over 2% in 2000 to below 1% in 2009, but the official error rates have uh, just about doubled during that time. I'm always actually take some satisfaction in pointing this out because I took over the benefits agency, I think in the first year that the, event, the accounts were qualified. And there was a kind of feeling abroad that somehow it was my responsibility. So it gives me some satisfaction now to be able to point to the fact that for the last 21 years they've been qualified, so it couldn't have just been uh, because of me. And I think it is partly because of the extreme complexity of a system which I hope is now going to be simplified. The third reason why this is a timely moment is there, there is a, a professed commitment to realising the potential of IT to transform our public services. I don't think we can deliver better services at less cost right across the public services unless we make better use of, uh, of IT. And the delivery of superfast broadband by 2015, whatever that means exactly, coupled with the so-called digital by default program, the appointment of a director of digital development in Mike Bracken, who's come from The Guardian, and the continual uh, engagement of Martha Lane Fox, all of that's been trumpeted by the government as evidence of its genuine determination this time to reap the benefits of technology to transform our services. And however sceptical we are, and I suspect there's a degree of scepticism on my right here, which will come out probably during the course of the day, all of that, I think, is positive news. The last reason why this is a moment of opportunity, I think, is, well, let's not forget the pressure from citizens themselves who increasingly expect to be able to engage with government using the Internet because that's the way they do much of their business outside of government. And again, as Patrick has said, not just outside of government now, but in other areas of government, and some of them very successful. Not enough examples, but some of them are, you know, very, very successful. So if there's so much opportunity about, so much determination, so much goodwill, we might be tempted to ask, well, what's the problem? Well, of course, government's not always found it easy to deliver online improvements, let alone wider public sector reform. And I think it's worth just reminding ourselves at the start of the day why that is, if only to remind ourselves not to make the same mistakes again, or maybe more positively, to think about strategies that we can develop to deal with 
the problems that have been encountered. The first for me, there, there are half a dozen for me. The first is that government has always been, not just in this country, but particularly in this country, obsessed with redesigning structure rather than redesigning services. I mean, actually, in the design world, form follows function. In government, it's always been the other way around. And structural change, as some of us know to our cost, very rarely works. And al although it is sometimes the inevitable consequence of service redesign, it's not, Tony Blair, where you should start. And if you do, what you do tend to do is to retain the existing service design and you merely seek to use IT as a way of processing transactions more efficiently, and that's not transformation. So this time, su success does demand that we take service design really seriously and that we employ those skills in our work. We've certainly not designed services well in the past, and we've certainly not designed them around clients too often, I think, we continue to design our services around the convenience of providers. I'm really not going to be nostalgic today, but I just remember the first time I ever had any contact with the benefit system was after I'd been appointed as chief executive of the, what was then the benefits agency, and I wandered into the Gloucester benefits office just to see how the system worked. And I had been told by a permanent secretary and all the senior staff that actually this was a system which was built, this was in 1990, around customers. And I sat there, actually two things happened. Firstly, very quickly people started coming and asking me where to go and what to do, because I had a tie on and looked as if I must know what was going on. But the most important thing I noticed was that they just introduced a massive IT system at the time, but it was built around the benefits, not around the clients. So if you were a client in receipt of two or three benefits, which was often the case, you actually had to go to separate windows in order to access different systems in order to get your benefit. So whatever was being said at the time, and I have to say thereafter about we build around clients and customers, actually I don't think that was, that was the reality. It's improved. I know it's improved. But as Ian Watmore, the government's deliveries are admitted recently, many online transactions are difficult to use because a web version has been bolted on to the original clerical or visit-based transaction and not redesigned with the user or the web in mind. And as I found out, as we found out during some of the total place work I was involved in a year or two ago now, uh, the public sector, not least government, still knows far less about its clients, its customers, and citizens than it thinks it does, or certainly than it should do if service design is going to be effective. Client-facing services have been part of the rhetoric for many years, but I think they still remain, for large parts of the public sector, more part of the rhetoric than the reality. The third issue, for many years, the number of people without digital access was used as a reason, as you've said, for limiting the use of web-based access to services. That is now, less now the case, but there are still 9 million people who do not yet have access, and of course, many of those are traditional benefit recipients. So this does remain a, a major issue to be overcome in this particular subject area. The strategy is, as 
part of Race Online 2012 to provide an assisted digital service through post offices, libraries where they will continue to exist, community centres and commercial outlets. Although that may be easier said than done. Not least, I think, because, and this is the fourth issue, the government or at least the civil service has been quite reluctant or found it very difficult, whichever you wish, to forge genuine relationships with external agencies and with the civil society. And again, whatever the rhetoric surrounding the big society, I think that continues to be an issue. That reluctance has been evident in government's failure to share or make available information which social enterprises, the voluntary sector, could use to help citizens to make better use of government services or just to access them. My feeling is that, and I'm involved in one or two really quite exciting things at the moment in this area, my feeling is that we're standing on the verge of a potential revolution in the way that data and information is shared, made available and managed for the benefit of clients and citizens and that the civil society is right, should be right at the centre of that. And I'd be, I, I, I already asked Patrick for a write-up of today's conference. I'd be really interested to hear what the major uh, third sector organisations have in mind. What is the strategy of the big players you know, to deal with this issue? Because I think we can't carry on working, they can't carry on working in the same old way. Fifth issue, well, government departments uh, can be a problem. Um, and they demonstrated actually huge resistance to join up across bureaucratic boundaries as well as beyond. And we have designed a governance system in this country which is so complex and so centralised that many people find it almost impossible, and I do not overstate the case, to navigate their way around it. And anyone who's tried to put together packages of care, say for elderly people or for young people with learning difficulties, know just how difficult it is to bring together the very many different agencies who are involved in delivering services in those areas. More to the point, this is a system which does not, as Avery Hancock and Patrick have pointed out in some of the work they've done at the LSE, it doesn't play well to the requirements of digital era government which demands integration and client-focused structures. And as Patrick and Avery put it rather nicely, the digital wave has only lapped against some of the roughest edges of the public services. I rather like that, partly because it's absolutely true. And I think it just kind of reminds us of how far we have to travel. Do you know, I've worked in the public sector for far too long. I was going to tell you how long, but it's embarrassing and therefore, I'm committed to public services. But, you know, I'm really close to the point of wondering whether government departments and other public agencies are actually capable of collaborating effectively for the benefit of clients. Because I'm not convinced that the incentives and the pressures for them to do so are sufficiently powerful. If you work in the private sector, and I now split my time probably evenly between the two, if the only way to deliver a sellable service to the client is to break down professional, administrative and bureaucratic boundaries, you do it or you go under. And those pressures don't exist 
quite the same way in the public sector. Last week in this building, memorably, we had Johnny Ive over from, from Apple telling us about their approach to developing the iPhone and the, and the iPad. And you just have to listen to Johnny to realize just how focused they are on the customer and how determined they are to deliver something which is seamless, accessible, affordable, and, access and, and attractive. And if you compare that to many of our public services, it's a stark contrast. And if in Apple you need to do something, you need to break down some barriers to make sure that you deliver something which is seamless and accessible and affordable, you do it. And I don't see that happening enough, even now, in the public sector. And the final question, the final issue I'd raise is whether there is a determination to ensure that policy is really developed this time and informed by operational experience. In the world of social security, that has not always been the case. Benefit policy has been one of the most exacting intellectual exercises in government and the outcomes have in many respects been incredibly impressive. They've just been almost impossible to deliver efficiently or effectively because the operational managers have too rarely been involved in the development of policy. I know I'll be told that that has changed, but I'd want to see real evidence of that in the, in the new benefit, that policy work is learning and is being informed by the demands, the constraints, the opportunities of operational delivery. Now, all of those questions and more you, I know, will answer today. And I really am sorry that I've got to duck out, and I really do want uh, Patrick to give me a, a write-up of, uh, of your discussions, because as I said, not only is it timely, it's an absolutely fascinating area, and I hope you have a really stimulating day. Thank you. Well, we'll move swiftly on to the next session, so can I ask the uh, speakers to come on up and... Uh... So, what we uh, were hoping to do is to get a, a very authoritative uh, view from within government, and I'm really pleased to be joined by Matt Briggs, who's a veteran of all things uh, joining up and electronic in DWP and elsewhere. Guy Kerr, who's from uh, Government Direct and is the publishing director there, and uh, um, Direct.gov, sorry. Direct.gov, of course, has been a, a, a main player in this field for a long time now and Simon Bonniwell from the strategy unit at DWP. So the, the biogs are all in the, uh, in the pack, and uh, they'll speak for themselves. Let me get Matt to kick off. Okay, thank you. Um, I just want to quickly respond to one of the things that Lord Michael actually said there. I think there absolutely is an appetite um, for the public sector to actually join up around this. The financial position that we're in at the moment with inside the public sector is a driver for that. But I absolutely see things on the ground where people are joining up services across the piece, whether it's happening quickly enough and the challenges around that. But I do see there being an appetite. And when you do things around the needs of the citizen, then absolutely you see people working together across boundaries. And that's one of the things that I want to talk about um, under this. I'm a bit of a fraud, I think, in um, coming to this. Um, Tell Us Once um, is the programme that I manage. Um, and Tell Us Once is not a social security service. 
It is a service for the citizen. It goes across six central government departments and 400-plus local authorities. Um, and the main benefits of that service are actually found within areas outside of social security. Adult social services, um, housing as a service in itself... Um, so therefore, what I want to talk about is actually, is moving Social Security online the right question? Or is it about joining up services around the needs of the citizen that then can be put online? If it's, I'm now going to probably repeat a number of things that Lord Michael actually said, is if it's just about putting products online, the benefit system, then absolutely you could put those things online pieces of paper, convert them into a web, put them on, doesn't achieve much at all. People's lives are complex. People's lives have a number of different interactions with a number of different people within inside that. And unless you can actually start to join some of those things up, you're not going to find the convenient solutions. So maybe a better question around this is actually, can you put social justice online? And actually, universal credit is therefore a huge opportunity in actually achieving that um, and not to be seen as a product in itself. So universal credit is an outcome that is about the social justice within this um, society and therefore actually how do you deliver that becomes a fundamental movement towards putting services online. Just going back to the Tell Us Once experience... This is Chen, who um, is a customer of Tameside Local Authority. Um, the problems that we face with Inside Tell Us Once are that actually the fragmentation of different services not being online drives people into a face-to-face -face channel or a telephony channel. Actually, Chen started his journey after the birth of his child online. What do I do now I've had a child? Actually, what came out of that was you now need to go and visit here, you now need to go and print this off on this bit of the web, or you now need to ring this number. As soon as he went offline, he never went back on. And I think channel retention, not only channel shift, channel retention is going to be key. As soon as you lose someone from that online channel, they don't come back because the services that partners provide around this are so professional, are so good, and I'm not arguing that we actually degrade those, but they are so professional and so good, why would you go back to that online channel? As I said, people deal with things in multiple different ways. Um, the most efficiency that we have seen out of this, even if we put Tell Us Once online, um, the difference between the face-to-face -face Tell Us Once online and the online or face-to-face -face Tell Us Once and the online Tell Us Once is nowhere near the amounts of savings that you get of by joining up services and then delivering those. So the amounts of savings that we're seeing out of just joining up services is in... Delivery terms, £50 per transaction. And actually, if you start thinking about the impact that it has on the benefit expenditure or adult social services expenditure, then you're talking up to £500 per transaction. 
and that is a significant thing of just bringing things together. The difference between putting the service, moving it from face-to-face to online, only saves £4.80. And I think that is a significant thing that you have to think about in terms of that. Absolutely do believe you should be putting things online because Chen would have used it. And actually, delivering services around the needs of the citizen, he would have absolutely have used that. And that £4.80 is going to be important in the next period. But he would not have delivered this efficiency savings unless you joined up those services. So there's a significant challenge there. Um, he became incredibly frustrated with the system and it was only when he accessed a tell us once environment where there was one person or one system actually collecting information. When we collect information, when we have done user testing with inside the tell us once environment it has all been about real end users not members of staff or testers within environments. It's going out and finding lots and lots of citizens to actually go and use it and design the system from their perspective. So what you would see on a face-to-face service is exactly what you would see on the online service when it goes live. So the solution for us is about looking at the whole customer journey. And I just want to use one example here. Um, Chen here um, had a a one-bedroom house inside Tameside and his issue was he needed to have a bigger accommodation now he'd had his first child the only way he could get to that um, one bedroom house was that he was making a specific claim for a specific benefit so he'd gone to the housing section said you can't do that now go back to the benefit system the benefit system said well actually because you're in this other house you can't um, get to the benefit because it has a, a some weird thing around the number of rooms, had to go back, argue a case for a number of weeks, and kept going backwards and forwards between the housing and the social security system. If you can start to bring those things together, which Dawn here did, then actually you start to see a real difference in his outcomes and the cost in actually serving Chen. Because Chen, before he entered the Telesfront system, had accessed government about six to eight times without actually moving anything forward. And that is a real significant challenge. So if you deliver services around the whole customer journey and not focusing on parts that actually suit us and just put that bit online, because it's an easy bit to put online, then actually you start to see some real difference. Just a quote from a customer. People move into a system and often don't understand it. Simplifying that process creates a huge opportunity, both in efficiency, but the outcomes that we're seeing for citizens and social outcomes as that This customer here um, lost his two parents within two weeks of each other. He'd lived with his parents for 20 years. He didn't know how to do the washing. He didn't know how to do ironing. And what he was doing was putting mothballs in his drawer. Actually, once he'd accessed here, 
you started to get the third sector involved, getting age concern out to him, citizens' advice, the support structures around him, because it wouldn't have taken very much longer for this person to have ended up in some sort of care situation or serious health situation, which would have then cost the system significantly more. And therefore, what you need to understand is the unknown benefits around joining up are significant. We did not expect to see any of that when we started this, the journey, but once you started to um, pick them up, it was there. Another bit is um, around birth. Someone got their payments through the Telesponse system up to four months quicker, mainly because they didn't know how to navigate the system at all. And actually what you start to see is if you convert that, that's about a payment out. If you start to think about people don't know how to navigate the system when their payment should stop, four months' worth of benefit payments is a significant amount of money if they're not navigating the system effectively. And what we're seeing is twofold things happening with Inside Tell Us Once. Is the benefit expenditure, or Amy um, Stroke Dell expenditure, is significantly reduced through this because the speed of processing is happening quicker. The second, which picks up on one of the things that Lord Bishar said, is that the amount of official error has reduced significantly. When someone was accessing services when they were bereaved, they were doing it seven times. Now they're only having to do it once. In those seven times, they were creating a minimum, a minimum, of 17% of error. With Inside Tell Us Once, it is reduced down to 2%. I'm not saying that we can actually get rid of official error within the system, but actually doing it only once in a professional way that is delivered around the needs of the citizen, actually what you start to see is a significant reduction in official error. So my final point is my challenge around this is not about putting social security online, but joining up services and the service design bits and then putting that online. And I think that should be the approach that we should be taking. And should we be looking at digital by default from the customer's perspective? Because what I see is people actually starting digitally but moving off quite quickly. And how do you retain them? And that's about designing the service around their needs because they started there, they wanted to carry on their journey there, but left because it wasn't designed around their perspective. And they're the challenges that I think we face. I know that there will be people who will be talking about joining up from different perspectives of policy, universal credit. There will be, I think, William Heath is here this afternoon, who will be talking about information governance and joining up from that perspective. We have done it from a service design perspective, but they are the best approaches before the service is actually put online. I think driving to something online first and then taking a decision after about how do you join up is the wrong approach, and therefore we need to be doing it from the customer's perspective. Thanks very much, Matt. Thank you very much. Um, Sorry. Oh, well, I think uh, my slides dropped. Uh, Guy, can we, can we change, the order? change the order? Yeah. And run Simon? I'm sorry. That That's okay.
Okay. Um, I'm Simon Boyle from the Department for Work and Pension Strategy Unit. Uh, I just wanted to talk today a little bit about what um, our current service offering is online, um, what plans we have to um, improve that, and also about some of the challenges and issues that we face. Um, but before I sort of go into that, I'd just like to state our firm commitment to putting our services online. Um, we're firmly committed to kind of the Martha Lane Fox digital by default um, intention. Um, you know, it's what many of our customers tell us that they want. It's how we you know, best deliver our services to our customers and achieve the kind of outcomes that we're seeking to. Um, we are very much um, in favour of the work that the Government Digital Service that Guy will talk about um, is doing in terms of improving, uh, providing a sort of single front end for online government services, which I think helps address some of the questions that Matt was making about that joined up services for citizens. We think that you know, the online service is a good opportunity to provide more personalised service for our customers. Um, we'll be talking, I'll talk a little bit about that a bit later. Um, and then something which has already come up today um, is our sort of user-centred design, which is something we're doing very much in the universal credit space um, and really trying to make sure that we design the service around the perspective of, of the users and they're very much involved in that. Um, opening up our data and, and, and our delivery, very key to us. Uh, if, you know, it's something which you know, we struggle with, but I think there's some real opportunities, as uh, Lord Michael Bishop said, around the third sector there. Um, and clearly, you know, we're, we're very keen to help those that do have difficulty with online access get online so they can access our services that way. And finally, you know, we've already discussed it, but giving people the opportunity to self-serve online is a much more efficient way um, of delivering our services and, and clearly part of our ambition in this area. So what does the current offering look like? Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of primary information and some limited transactions online. You know, I think we'd probably agree that we're still um, in the early stages of putting our, our, our services online. You know, so some of the things we've got is uh, the Benefit Advisor Service, which is available through DirectGov, giving advice on a range of benefits, what you might be eligible for. Uh, we've got Job Seekers Allowance is online. Um, you can claim online. Um, we've got the Jobs and Skills Service, which is where um, uh, uh, basically a job vacancy website where people can go online to look at the uh, vacancies which are available through the Job Centre Plus database. Uh, and a range of online uh, state pension services from claiming state pension online, uh, finding out what your, your rates and entitlements are, when you might retire, what your likely um, income in retirement will be. So, limited, but we have you know, started putting some of our things online. How's that going? Um, it's a mixed picture. We've got reasonable progress on job seekers allowance online. State pension uh, online take up is, is, is very low. In part, this is calculated. Uh, we've not pushed these services heavily um, because we're still developing our service offer in this area. We don't want to get it wrong, put it out there to people, uh, and, and have a lot of people switched off. We have had some positive feedback on JSA Online, and 80% of people who have used the service have said they would do so again. But clearly we've got major work to do to kind of create the kind of major channel shift that we're all here to talk about today. So what are we doing? Here are some of the kind of immediate projects that we've got in train um, to improve on our current service offering, which is obviously one way of encouraging our people to use um, online services. 
Um, there's a new online vacancy taking and job matching service which will enable um, employers to put vacancies online, uh, customers to put their CVs online and kind of match uh, where those two things might get together um, so that we can better deliver um, jobs to our customers, which is one of the reasons you know, we're in business for. Um, we've got a new JSA online customer account, which will allow our uh, customers to update their claims, notify changes of circumstance online. We've got a benefit update service, uh, which will enable for kind of the six main working age benefits, customers to report changes to their method of payment and, and address online. Uh, and the benefit inquiry service, um, which will enable customers to make inquiries about the benefit claim, see start and end dates of their awards, details of the payment, how their new claim is progressing. And the big thing, which Matt has already mentioned, universal credit. Um, these things you know, are helping to improve our service, but they're really the building blocks laying the foundations for universal credit. Oh, which, too far. Um, universal credit is a big opportunity for us as a department. Um, it's a fundamental uh, reform of what we deliver. It's a simplification, biggest change to the benefit system uh, since its inception. Um, and I think it really gives us an opportunity to maximise sort of online delivery. Um, it's joining up services from what are currently in our department, in HMRC, and local authorities. Um, and it will be a digital by default service. We will expect people primarily to claim digitally. It's also where we've really developed um, our user-centered design process. So as we're designing the universal credit, um, we're sort of designing small slices and testing those on users every fortnight to make sure that we're getting the service right and it's developed around their needs and they can interact with it effectively and you know we're ambitiously trying to get it to go live the new customers in October 2013 with all customers migrated to, uh, to it by 2017 this is a really huge opportunity for us um, as the department for government for citizens um, and you know we're, we're very keen to make the most of it but you know there are, we recognize that we've got a long way to go in this journey and there are a number of issues um, that we face. Channel migration um, is, is a huge one for us. Um, we've sort of talked that maybe the uh, DWP customer base is, is changing and then they, they do have more online access than we might have sort of thought a few years ago. We need to make sure that they are able to use this, that they're aware of the service, you know, looking at our, how we market it, um, how we facilitate access. Um, make sure that it's a good service that they find easy to use. Of the, uh, the 9 million people that were mentioned earlier, as part of the, the Race Online um, recognise who, who are not online, um, probably around half of those are our customers. They're the, you know, the over 65s, they're unemployed, they're disabled. Um, and we are looking to work with Race Online to look at how we can encourage them to use our online services. Um, and within our own organisation, try and create a culture change that enables um, our staff to promote online services. So in all Job Centre Plus offices at the moment, we have digital champions. 
We're also using our kind of internal community 10,000 volunteering network to help older people to use online services. Um, APIs, application programming interfaces, um, which I'm not an expert on, but I think the key point here is around enabling other organisations, um, you know, the third sector has been mentioned. That, to me, strikes as a, a real opportunity to enable other organisations to um, put our services uh, in, in a manner that um, our, those customers who might feel more have to deal with those organisations with us um, will enable them to access them more easily. Um, but we do have issues around security and identity verification. Those are challenges for us. We're talking about millions of people's data lots of customer information. We need to be sure for security and forward reasons that we're, the people who are claiming benefits are the right people. And there's a real you know, tension that we have to look at resolving between those kind of security issues alongside the customer experience and making sure that we find the right balance between those things. Government digital service is another opportunity for us, uh, I think. Um, I'm, I'm sure Guy will, Guy will speak a lot more about it. Um, we talked already about the need for customers. They don't look at DWP as DWP. You know, we're part of government, and it needs to be uh, looking at how um, the government digital service can help us to deliver services which enable them to access whatever they need across a range of government services in, a, in an easy way. And beyond the, kind of the things that we talked about, we've got other challenges. For there are you know, always new initiatives coming out, um, and, and we have... You know, in looking to the future, the reform of state pensions, another simplification. You know, we need to look at how we're going to put that service online, and also the uh, personal independence payment, which will replace disability living allowance. These are, you know, future challenges, and we'll need to consider how um, you know we enable our customers uh, to use them online. So I think, you know, it's it's early days, and we've got a long road to travel, um, but I think we're making good progress in the right direction. Um, and we're, aware, we're aware that there's a range of issues that we have to, have to look at, um, but you know, we're firmly committed to, to doing so. Thank you very much. <laughs> so we move on to Guy Kerr from uh, Direct.gov. Oh, well. You didn't. It was, a, it was a hoax. I didn't have any slides anyway. Um, good morning. My name is Guy Kerr from DirectGov, which has now uh, been reconstituted into uh, the government digital service. Um, just as a, 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 before we start, as a curiosity and to satisfy my interest about the audience, how many people here have ever been uh, clients or customers of the social security system in the UK? Good. So uh, people have got experience firsthand about how to uh, deal with the, uh, the overall um, plethora of services and, and offerings that that huge department uh, offers in terms of the DWP and, and that is supported by other departments. So uh, as I said, the direct gov, which everyone's aware is, is the, 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 the primary website and online offering for government services, is, is being change into the government digital service and the, the GDS is there to primarily promote an evidence-based approach so that uh, the user's uh, needs are championed ahead of those of the policy makers and other people who, who uh, have interest in, in this regard. 
But I think that it's, it's a good time now to take stock. I think that we should study some of the details that have been gleaned over the last three or four or five years of how people interact with so social services online so we can get some insights into some of the things that are um, evident in, in terms of issues and, and aspects of the service. Over the past few years, many millions of people have gone to DirectGov seeking information about entitlements and online access to those entitlements. Just, just to get your head around this, in May this year, there were 10.9 million visits to job seekers' content on DirectGov, up 20% on the same time last year. Not surprising given the, the uh, economic background. Some of those people reported that they were satisfied with what they found. One of the features of DirectGov is it's got this, uh, every page has got this comment on this article. It's a feature where people can leave comments and, and rate what they've just uh, experienced. Um, and we get hundreds of thousands of comments a month, so there's quite a, quite a job trawling through them and picking up insights. Um, at the moment, it, it's, it's done largely manually. Um, in February, 841 people left comments about the job seekers' allowance. 63% said they were, they were happy with what they found, which is broadly over, in line with the overall satisfaction level of DirectGov, which is about 64%. One, one uh, gentleman wrote, uh, it's very useful. I can look for a job 24 hours a day in the comfort of my own home and not run into the job centre every day, hence saving fuel. I have just applied for a job due to your website, said another person. But for other people, the online experience itself simply isn't good enough. And it fuels the need to have a conversation with someone rather than utilizing the online experience and the automated process that goes with it. One person took the trouble to, to, to uh, put down uh, quite, a, quite a passionate complaint. The whole DirectGov website is hard to get on with. It is overcomplicated. You cannot encompass the whole of the benefit system under one roof. Job search was useful and I enjoyed using that facility, but more staff on phones would be great rather than online, especially if you are pay using pay-as-you-go internet. And, and then if you go to another uh, major area of social security delivery on DirectGov, the benefits inquiry service, the satisfaction ratings get much lower, 47% against the, the site-wide average of 64 and again, the, uh, the comments are very, very revealing. My circumstances change when I am 29 weeks pregnant, says one bemused lady. I am currently looking to move into a place with my partner, and it is not flexible enough to give accurate information about circumstances. For example, I am currently on job seeker's allowance and 26 weeks pregnant. I will be moving on to income support at 29 weeks, and everything changes again. It is very confusing and not very idiot-proof for someone who doesn't understand benefits. For another respondent, it was all too much. I'm sick of being forced to do everything online. I just want to speak to someone, she wrote. So we can see there's two issues here, twin issues which are being identified. Many people experience difficulty navigating the online experience. And secondly, the system behind it has an inbuilt complexity 
that many people find very hard to understand. Now, the complexity of the benefits service is an issue that is being addressed, and my colleagues from the DWP have talked about that. The hope is that the introduction of the universal credit will allow for much of that complexity to be smoothed out. But if the online experience itself isn't radically improved, intuitive use by the public of, on, of online services is always going to lag behind. Now that's the backdrop to the introduction of the digital by default agenda. The challenge is to get all those people doing their social security business online. I mean, there are lots of historic reasons for where we are and lots of complexities to overcome. We exist in a legacy situation with 50-year-old services which were initially created to serve people in a paper environment. Then they were repurposed to enable people to be surfaced face-to-face -face, and then they were repurposed for the telephony and now they're being repurposed again. So it's a kind of endless repurposing. In, in a digital world, that needs to be done all over again, and some of the back office systems need to be hooked up to each other, which is very complex back office work. The other man manifest uh, truth here is that the customer base is incredibly diverse, and by definition includes people who are not 100% prepared for a digital world. And that's where the assisted digital agenda comes in, so that people can be uh, helped through the process of getting online and completing their online business successfully. And, and it is uh, part of the GDS uh, um, uh, vision that all digital by default strategies will include an assisted digital component. So you're, you're putting everything out online, but you're also making provision to assist people for whom that will be difficult. And I think that nowhere is this, is this going to be more important than in the, in, in the design of optimum online social security. If we crack this, we will have signified a major advance. So we will have improved gov government online services. We will have rapidly and, and dramatically assisted the ability of people to utilize them. And we will have changed the, the capabilities of a major department. And don't forget, in that department, many of the staff will be both the agents and the beneficiaries of the system they are introducing. That is the, uh, one of the aspects of universal credit because it varies up and down the income scale. So that is my uh, little precy of where we are and, and some of the insights and experiences of DirectGov over the last few years. And hopefully that will set up a bit of a conversation. Thanks very much, Guy. Well, we've got uh, a decent amount of time for uh, questions and queries to the speakers. So, yes, let's start. Actually, not for the speakers. Is anyone else common here? Use a centric approach to. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, queries to the speakers, comments, questions. Yes. Hang on. Do you mind? We're trying to record all this, so we'd be very grateful if you could say who you are and say it into the mic. Yeah, sure. David Dinsdale, former director of Business Link. Uh, query for Matt on, on Tell Us Once. Um, you were talking about kind of the, the un changing the underlying structures. Um, my impression of Tell Us Once originally was kind of applying a, a sort of a veneer to the underlying structures. Um, are you starting to see 
through Tellers Ones, people fundamentally changing their, their processes to, you know, a lot, a lot has been said about user-centered design, but to, to focus on, on the problem for the user as opposed to kind of a sticking plaster over the top. Um, yes, it was even here at the um, beginning. Um, and yes, I have started to see differences. I think the big thing that I think we've seen in the past is that people designed integration from the back end and tried to work it forward. What Telus once did was actually change the integration from the front end. And what that did was drive people's behaviours inside organisations saying, well, actually, if that's the information that we're getting from the citizen at that front end, we have to do something about our back-end processes. And those back-end processes also needed integration across um, a number of different parts of that organisation or across organisations. So I wouldn't say it's gone a huge journey in that way, but we have started to see that journey happening. Okay, query over there. I think we might take two or three queries together. Um, this is a question for Simon Bonnewell. Um, you mentioned um, that you're testing on users, um, but can you explain or um, how you're including users before the testing in terms of gathering user data on how people actually might use the service? Uh, on the subject of APIs, I'm getting the feeling that the APIs are being seen as a bit, they're coming across as a bit of an afterthought. The experience of using APIs uh, for certain services, notably um, the ability for other organizations to build tax uh, collection and tax receipt front ends, is a really good example of the powerful ability to let others create the presentational side of the services and let government do what it does in preserving the integrity and logic at the back end. And that dislocation, that decoupling, seems to be uh, of crucial strategic importance. It's not really coming over as being front and center of, of policy, he says provocatively. Okay. Is there a third question? Uh, Tony Curry from A4E. I guess my observation would be I've got three sort of representatives from UK PLC, but I didn't really get a sense of join-up, uh, you know, probably excluding Matt to an extent. So, so, so where is that join-up? Because it felt like we're doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, and I didn't get any sense of, you know, the collaboration. It would be interesting to get a perspective on that. Because we started off saying this needed join-up, it needed collaboration, three different conversations, all, all kind of striving for the same thing, but I couldn't see the join-up. Okay, let's ask Simon to kick off. Yeah, sure. Um, user data, um, I mean, as I understand, I'm not an expert in kind of what's going on on a day-to-day basis, is they, they sort of design bits of service and then test those on users, but also in, in addition, we have kind of an extensive customer insight program into working out, you know, kind of, uh, very regularly running research on, on user panels on um, how, how services are received, um, you know, have a wealth of kind of data on all of those kind of things, and that's all being played into the design process as well. Um, on APIs, um, I think it's a real opportunity, um, and, and you know, it's a challenge for us. I think it's something we haven't done enough thinking about, to be honest. Um, and, and we need we need to sort of do that, and I think it's something that the GDS have, have you know raised through through their strategy, um, and also the government ICT strategy also has a role for us to kind of look into 
um, the use of those, and I think that's definitely something we need to do because I think there are, there are real opportunities there. Um, and join up. Maybe we should have shared our material um, better with each other in advance. I think I mean, it's a good challenge because, and I think it's again something that the, and Guy might sort of follow follow on. It's something that the GDS can really help us with because departments do inevitably, you know, we've got silos within our own departments, never mind across the rest of government. Um, but citizens don't look at us that way. Um, so we need to, and I think the GDS have a really valuable role in helping departments work together to provide that kind of coherent service. Yeah, I mean, just, just to follow on that point, which is a very valid point, uh, the GDS is within Cabinet Office, and specifically within a unit of Cabinet Office called the Efficiency and Reform Group. And again, you know, a lot of this conversation is about efficiency, but a very big part of it is about reform. And it's about reform of how government operates and how it works together. And, and certainly, as Simon said, you know, we, that is part of the, the role going forward and part of the challenge and part of the historical reality of UK PLC that it comes from you know, a very sort of siloed, departmental um, background. And obviously, the modern, the modern age is, is about you know, the interests of the consumer and the citizen, and it puts everything in a different light. Matt, you are a veteran of joining things up. Um, I think it was one of the things that Lord Michael said around governance, I think, becomes the big block in that space, and governance around um, departmental accountabilities, funding mechanisms um, between central and local, those sorts of things become a block. But they're not blocks that you can't get beyond. They, to me, are things that you have to work around, and I think the things that you focus on in that space are all about coming back to the citizen. Once you start to use the language of the citizen, all partners seem to understand it. And actually, if you work from that perspective, then you can move, remove quite a lot of those. They're not easy things um, to remove, um, but all the evidence that I've seen is that there is a capability of doing that. Um, I think what we came up with inside Tell Us Once Around a Funding Mechanism was quite remarkable in a sense. I'm not going to go into a huge detail. Some of that's commercially confidence, but actually what it came up with was a mechanism that actually reallocated some of the benefits to meet the costs. And actually once you start to share some of those sorts of things, then actually what you start to see is people joining up because that's a thing that focuses people's minds quite a lot. Okay. APIs, do you want to say something more about that? Do you want to say something more for those of us who are not Great. Experts at APIs, and my colleague on the floor might uh, add in. Um, well, I wouldn't claim to be an expert either, unfortunately. Um, I know, I mean, that um, we know HMRC have made quite good use of them. Um, for me... It, These are things like tax professionals running uh, tax... Yeah. Programs. So I guess my I view... Have two, I have yeah. two examples. So yeah. there's, a, there's a job centre plus API at the moment which exists within DWP. And that's the internal tool that's used to make sure that the core information about available jobs and uh, access points gets to the service points for its users. Now, making that API, there's been a long attempt to try and make that API publicly accessible so that any amount of other providers could build access to the repository of jobs. And it's snagged for two years because of a, 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 what I would say is a slightly trivial issue about data confidentiality. Um, would you believe that because the names of the people who've got the jobs are in that database... There's a data processing restriction saying, well, we don't want to make that public. Now, one question is why you would want to put your name in a database saying, I've got a job, if you didn't want people to contact you. But that's a great example of something which does exist, 
then could transform services if made available? So perhaps we should question a little more deeply what's really holding it back. Um, and the second example is from the US where they've got uh, certain services to do with um, tax submission. The government by statute is not allowed to provide the front-end service um, and therefore the market in, in really good user-centric tools has flourished there because there has to be an accessible point by which others can develop. So there's two practical examples to draw on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the issue of security and data is something which is a, is a, is a barrier for us, perhaps more so than it should be at times, um, and we need to look at the balance between that and the uh, user experience, and I think APIs can really improve, potentially, uh, the user experience. And for us, to get our services um, better, off to, better delivered to some of our customers, um, you know, we don't actually, it's hard for a civil servant to say this, but maybe I don't know better than uh, you know, everybody else in the entire population, and we think that there are other organisations you know, who, who could do that. Um, but we do also have to balance that with our responsibilities around you know, customer data. Uh, maybe I'll just add one thing to that. If I was starting Telus once again, I would have started from the perspective of an API. Because actually what we started with is what the back-end systems would look like and how does the information move from one bit to another and where does that sit with inside the government gateway and what sort of security structures and then put something on the front of that. And actually if we'd have started from the API end, actually that may have driven some of the processes um, later on. And I think that there is a fundamental where do you start your design journey and actually from my perspective it should always come back to the citizen what's the first interface that they have with them that's going to be a system who are going to be able to design things around their needs that's different multiple suppliers APIs then become the multiple way of actually delivering that and then what are the systems that actually sit behind that to support it unfortunately I think with inside the public sector and I'm as guilty as anyone around that you start from the back end system so how do you comply with security being your first question but, but Paul, I mean, also the, the other issue, which I think you know might be worth discussing further, if, you know, is the fact that for a lot of government departments, the whole notion of partnering up with new you know, delivery partners, it, it, you know, is something that is is quite new on the, on the blocks. So, you know, there is now a requirement for a much freer conversation with partners, and therefore that informs how you know the importance of API delivery. Okay, let's see if we can get some more queries and questions. Yeah. Well, we've got three. Let's get those three. Well, that raises an interesting question about... So you're Jerry. Oh, sorry. Jerry Fishenden. I'm wearing various hats, as usual. Um, raises an interesting question what digital by default means. Uh, are departments interpreting that to mean a website, or are they taking it to mean APIs? Um, I, I would assume Universal Credit is starting with an API, given the government's agenda of driving services to the edge, letting big society vanguards um, deliver services directly. So I'd be interested to hear how Universal Credit is consulting with people like Paul and other experts on, on the API that underpins it. Um, and just another observation, 15 years ago, um, there were joined up services. The, the, the idea of doing things from the front while government at the back end sorted itself out has been around 15 years. It's not... Um, anything terribly novel. I'm interested as to what's different now that will make that sticky in a way it wasn't for the last um, 15 years. Thanks very much, Jerry. 
Hello, um, my name is Siobhan Cochlan and I think I'm probably the token local government person in the room. Um, I work for the uh, local government group. Um, the point is, um, I think, from my perspective in local government is local authorities are often the front line who get to pick up the pieces when uh, the system doesn't work for the citizen. Um, we've seen it happen again and again where the benefits process is, is overly complex as, as it is currently delivered and the citizen arrives at the local authority often in desperate need uh, for emergency funding or equally importantly at risk of maybe being evicted from their house because benefit payments haven't been processed quick enough. And my concern in all of this is by just shoving things online digitally without proper due consideration of how things are connected and how things are designed, we are going to make that even worse. Um, so uh, we're just going to speed up the process, if you like, of making it more complicated for, for the citizen and putting them into those emergency positions. For me, there's also um, three dependencies which have hardly been touched on today if we're going to do this successfully. We talk about access, we talk about broadband in a kind of, yeah, everybody's going to have super uh, fast broadband, but there are parts of the country right now, there are significant areas where people don't have access to broadband. Um, equally, a lot of people still don't have access to PCs, laptop, etc. Um, and um, as much work as we've been doing over the last 10 years to make that happen, that still hasn't uh, happened. There's a huge issue of trust. Uh, how many people in this room filled in their census form online? Okay. You know, and we're supposedly the people working on, on this agenda. So how, you know, how, how can we expect somebody who perhaps doesn't have the skill set to even fill the paper form in correctly to do so online? And we're not necessarily uh, thinking about how we're going to enable in, in intermediaries. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, the key point that's been touched on briefly is designing it so that it works um, you know, for, for, from the citizen. So just simply designing a housing benefits uh, service online or just designing a pension payment online doesn't work for a citizen who maybe has multiple of, of those. So as much as I am, you know, if you like, su uh, supporting the whole drive, the use of technology to enable service and digital, there are significant issues that we need to address before this is going to work successfully. Great. Well, that's two very rich questions. So let's let, give the panel time to respond to both those, and we'll come to the, the next question in just a minute. Is the what's sticking point. Um, I'm not saying that we have see evidence that it actually is sticking at the moment. I do think the financial climate that we're in at the moment, the economic one, drives a behaviour. I think the technology that's here at the moment, actually once you start to implement that, um, people retain technology quite a lot in the public sector for a, quite a long period of time. They have less refresh with inside the public sector than I've seen inside the private sector around um, technology. So I think the technology itself will stick. Um, I think will be a major challenge um, coming forwards. I think the other bits that I think that are seeing this, I think people are starting to see the benefits of joining up. Um, whereas I think 15 years ago there was sort of token activities going on, actually you couldn't really see the evidence coming out as to what benefits were actually starting to be achieved. I think some of the things that are happening now, and all be sharp, some of the total place activities started to demonstrate some real financial savings were achievable. Um, through that, and I think that is going to be one of those things that once you start to see the evidence, it creates a journey. Whereas I've never seen real evidence previously. Okay. So, 
Um, I mean, on the access issue, um, I think you know we we recognise that that is a, is is a problem, um, and and we've got you know a number of things in training, as I mentioned earlier, to try and deal with that. But I think there there is always sort of more that we can do. Um, you know, we we are working with people like the post office to examine what capabilities are in that space. Um, and, and, and in terms, I mean, the sort of the, the, the reach of broadband, um, it's not something I'm, I'm an expert on particularly, but, uh, you know, clearly we can't expect people to use our online services if they can't get online. You know, it's, it's self-evident, really, isn't it? Um, and I think, you know, the, I think you mentioned another part about designing from the perspective of the citizen. Um, I mean, we are very much with universal credit, particularly... But in, in across all of our business now, very much taking that user-centered design um, approach, um, which, you know, kind of almost seems an obvious thing to do, I suppose, <laughs> to me anyway. But it's something that we're really pushing very hard um, now. And is Universal Credit set up as an API? Um, I'm not... I'm not, I'm not sure if you... My, my instinct to that is probably not, but I'm not sure... Um, I have to um, say. I, I don't know the answer. I know the outcome is that it should be an open architecture in that sort of way around yes. um, APIs, but to say that it's designed from that perspective, I just don't know. So. Go on. Well, just, no, I mean, just for, for the local government thing, you know, local government is an incredibly important um, player in this field, and the insights that you have um, you know, are crucial to how all this thing goes forward. Um, I think we're, you know, some of the things that you said are... Yes, indeed. There are very big contextual issues which we have to address. The technological hookup in, in parts of the country, you know, the ability of people to, to, to uh, um, you know, uh, access online services through lots of, uh, you know, social factors. Um, these are all very important issues, but, you know, they are challenges, and I think the context is the opportunity. You know, everything's kind of in line, you know, that the economics kind of give uh, departments less choice to, to flap around. The, the, the uh, you know, overall experience of the, the population has reached critical mass. The private sector has got excellent examples of how it can work very, very well. You know, this is now the time to do it. And, and you know, hopefully that those, those alignments will give us that momentum we need. Can I just pick up on that local authority point? I think... There's quite a lot of talk inside central government about learning things from local government. Actually, I don't think that's the basis of the question. Actually, from a citizen's perspective, the relationship between local and central is intrinsically linked. And actually, how you do those things together is absolutely key. And I think the investment, um, tell us once, could not have succeeded without local government involvement, um, without it. So I think for me, is the, the huge, the massive investment that we put into relationships with local government is probably the biggest success of tell us once. Um, out of this because it's actually about bringing together this overall experience of the customer which doesn't define itself by a central local split and I think that's the biggest thing that we have found through it and I'm not convinced that yet that across government we have yet understood all of the intrinsic links between central and local that enable us to design services around the user in that holistic way um, but I do think it comes back to a point you made around governance and those sorts of things that I think we do have to understand what are the relationships and how those things work both politically and financially between the two. Great. Well, let's move on to the next round of questions. There was a gentleman here who's been waiting very patiently. Thank you. 
Uh, my name's Martin Inch. I'm from Disability Alliance. And I think the thing is, uh, we're kind of a, a bit more practical experts on benefits. Uh, we use computers and we use the web, obviously. But I've got a kind of misgiving, which is uh, there's a lot of things being initiated, and, you know, a lot of government stuff being initiated, and it's it's all quite it's it's quite rushed in a, in a way. Although it's got a time scale, it's quite rushed. Uh, we've had we've already seen even, even for universal credit was introduced. We've seen migration of incapacity benefit to employment and support allowance, and at the same time, almost as an overlap, we're having a, a migration to universal credit. And there's a lot of faith in this universal credit. And the idea of basically everybody on a low income being able to claim something, whether they're working or whatever their, their, their life circumstances, is a, is a very good one. But there are going to be a lot of benefits that aren't in that universal credit system. So they've got to be interfaced. Also, you are dumping things that don't fit into the universal credit system. So you've more or less abolished community care grants by giving them to local authorities and giving them no real guidance on what to do about the replacement for them. You've also got uh, personal independence payments coming in, but you'll be maintaining an attendance allowance system and a disability living allowance system for children. And this is um, someone wanting to find out this information. Are, are they naturally going to be going to an online service and will that online service take account of all of that and right now my feeling is 64% as a satisfaction rate if you'll forgive me is quite poor I get quite antsy if one of my fact sheets has less than 94% satisfaction with what I've written in them so I think you've got quite a hurdle there Thank you very much. And um, there was a lady behind. Hello, Alex Oliver from the Futures Company and IIPS. And my question is a bit different, but it alludes to a point made by, I think, all of the speakers, really, which is that at the end of the day, when we're talking about channel migration, it's a behaviour change channel uh, challenge for, for many of the audiences. And I think that, you know, for me, potentially one of the most powerful levers in, in achieving you know, this behaviour change challenge is the frontline staff themselves. And, and I just wondered to what extent, you know, that opportunity is really being embraced and exploited across, you know, the frontline, be it, um, you know, across DWP or local authorities. You know, are people who are coming in, into contact with um, clients, customers, whatever we want to call them, face-to-face -face on a daily basis, do they have themselves the skills and the enthusiasm and the appetite to help migrate those people online. Okay, thank you very much. Was there a third question? Yeah. Uh, James Arch, I'm also local government from uh, Kensington and Chelsea Council. And I mean, I first remember hearing about Talus once back in the last century. And <laughs> Um, it, it, come, it seems to come up now and again you hear about this mythical thing called tell us once and 
then there's somebody who is allegedly running a programme or a project on it within the council, and then it all goes quiet again for a bit. And I work in, in adult social care, and, you know, the, we have people who do what's called income maximisation, and so they will go out and do a financial assessment on people, get an enormous amount of detailed information. Um, now, it would be fantastic if that could actually be joined together so people um, could actually be, be, be helped out in that way because one of the things that we found when um, we had some, some in-depth interviews done with, with service users and potential service users was that people who are... Um, it's difficult to get on benefits and it's difficult to get through assessment for... Um, support from, from adult social care and it's getting even harder and so when people get there it's almost like somebody described it as the waiting room of life you know, it's very difficult to get in there but it can actually be quite cosy once you get into um, the waiting room and I think that because there is fear associated with that that um, if you don't really understand where people are coming from, it's very hard to actually design services that suit them. And so, um, one of the um, one of the things that, that, that strikes that strikes me is, I wonder, is about in terms of people working, your staff working on the front line, how many of them actually use the online systems. So how many of them will use on a day-to-day -day basis the information and advice or the online forms themselves? Great. Okay, well, let's get Guy to come back on that and then Matt and then Simon. Uh, I'll, I'll pick up a couple of points rather randomly, probably. Just on the... At 64%, that, that is indeed not, not good enough. And, and I was... I'm bringing out some examples to indicate people's frustrations so that, you know, that shows that, you know, the dual nature of the system, not only the, on, the, the navigating and the online bit, but the complexity are huge blockers to, to you know, a, a, a seriously effective um, take-up and completion of those services. <clears throat> in terms of the actual um, experience of frontline staff and, and the intermediaries in, in government, um, I mean, quite recently I was talking to a, um, a lady who heads up Service Canada. And in Canada, all um, staff in their DWP equivalent to Job Centre Plus offices sit next to clients. So when the person comes in, they sit next to each other and get online together and, oh, you know, Mrs. Smith, have you tried this, have you tried that? So there's a kind of lesson going on. And she said that that is improving results quite a lot. And, and that's been fed into the... Um, you know, uh, re, uh, rethinking of how the DWP arrange their own um, services, and maybe Simon will talk about that, but, but th those kind of things are very important. But also, as I alluded at the end of uh, my little piece, that, um, you know, universal credit, the introduction of universal credit will mean a lot of staff who administer DWP things will also become clients of that service. So that they will be... Um, hopefully incentivized to a much bigger degree to understand it, to talk about it, and to talk, and to talk people through it. So those are just a couple of, of issues which, uh, you know, to, to, to kind of get the conversation going. Matt? 
Um, probably going back to front, TUO does feel like it's been around forever. Uh, I feel like I've been around forever. Um, um, doing it. I, I think one thing I'll say about that is Telesponse is a descriptor. It's not a brand. And actually, I think it's starting to become a brand in that sort of sense. So what you hear is peaks and troughs. So actually, if you went to Southwark Local Authority across the river, um, you'll never see anything that says Telesponse anywhere. Um, but they deliver the Telesponse service. So I've, I think there's something there around branding. And what we try to do is to give as much flexibility to organisations to brand the service in the way that they feel is most appropriate to their customers. Again, delivering things around um, the needs of their citizens rather than us from the centre determining what that should be. Um, if I had a real opportunity, the adult social care space that you're talking about there is, I think, a fundamental area of opportunity. I'm not sure it fits within this descriptor of social security because we're all from... Or, two of us from DWP, um, but there's a real relationship between how those things work together and I think um, some opportunities. Um, Alex, I recommend you go down to Kent. Um, Kent has a fantastic um, way of actually dealing with customers that encourages them to go online and to work through their Kent, Kent Gateway hubs. Um, see there, so it's absolutely um, great there. Um, your point um, around customers going online. The interesting thing for us, when we went through a, the customer insight, the majority said that they would actually want to have the service delivered to them in a face-to-face -face way. Not unsurprising. When you actually observe what they do, and some of the work that we do is actually going with people and seeing what they did, the majority of them actually started their journey online. This is what I have an issue around in terms of retention. How do you keep them there? So where do they go and find information about what to do after a bereavement? They go on to DirectGov. Unfortunately, what they do on DirectGov is then have to print off a series of things, like go and tick this off and go and do it. Or it's about how to retain. They spend a long time trying to find out where the probate office is. Yes. Uh, I just did that the, the other day, and it took me like 15 goes to find out where the probate office actually was placed uh, yeah. so that you could go to it So there's online. Those. So there's those things for me is that I do believe that a significant number of people do start their journey in that way. It's about retaining them in that way by giving them an experience that enables that to do. And that's where I think user sense of design, the approach to the government digital service, which has a much greater remit in terms of bringing together um, these services, is actually going to be a fundamental shift in the way that we do it. Um, but I do take on Bull Chavon's earlier comment around actually you can only do that if there are some things in place. Um, like the super fast broadband from 2015, identity verification being sorted to enable those sorts of things to move forward. And to say that they have been solved at this stage is probably the wrong answer at the point. But actually, you can see a route map. Simon, quick yep. final thing? Yeah, sure. Um, on the, uh, the staff point, I think we recognise that's kind of a big issue. There's a cultural change that we need to do. I mean, with universal credit, there'll be a lot of changes for our staff more generally but you know the, the IT the kind of digital aspects should be part of that we do have in job center plus offices at the moment digital champions but we need to kind of you know step up our game in that area I think uh, on the universal credit and all the other bits and bobs that aren't in universal credit I mean I completely agree it needs to work together as a total customer experience and it's it's a big challenge for us definitely you know we look on universal credit as a big opportunity 
but it's also, you know, it's not a kind of necessarily a utopia, and there will be other bits and bobs outside it that we need to ensure work with it. Good. Well, look, thank you very much, uh, guys. That was a really very interesting uh, start, very, uh, very helpful, and uh, gets us off to a good thing.